Amen. Um, hey, guys. Um, so uh, there are a number of things about um, First John, well, First, Second, and Third John that are challenging because uh, John writes in a very complex way in the Greek language, and then the translation that was performed to bring it into English makes it even more complex because when they wrote uh, throughout the occasions that it was translated into English and particularly in 1611, there was a much different English understanding of the tenses and the way that they said things. So when they translated, they, they just grasped it and go, yeah, of course, there, I get that. Uh, today, you know, the continued deterioration of our language and the definitions and the way we understand things leaves it that a lot of times when people read uh, particularly 1st John, but 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it raises more questions sometimes than it answers. And so we're going to tear apart, uh, once again, the tense of uh, these uh, particular words and, and really try to gain the understanding. Now, I just encourage you, um, there are a couple different uh, programs I use, um, and I would encourage you, if you have questions, my wife's uh, a book learner, so she doesn't want anything in software. She wants it in, you know, a paperback or a hard cover, one or the other, and wants to cover the whole table with books and read. Uh, if you do that, great. Get Strong's Concordance. Uh, get a good lexicon uh, and read and understand. Have several translations. You can still buy parallel translations that have, uh, you know, like three or four different translations. You'll have King James version and the NIV and the New Living Translation right side by side so you can read each verse right across in the different translations. If you're looking for some software, um, uh, eSword is uh, free. You can download that. Uh, so isn't uh, Olive Tree. And uh, all of, both of these that I'm mentioning are available uh, on PC, Mac, and on your mobile uh, device. Uh, they have uh, a tremendous amount of lexicon and uh, the uh, different uh, strong concordance. Uh, I think I've got something like 15 different commentaries in my uh, eSword that I use commonly. So you can look at all these different scholars throughout history and say, you know, what did, what did they understand from this verse? really helps you to understand things. And that's a lot of what I've done in uh, reading this. So as I just sort of tell you this evening, like this is what that means, rather than dig through and explain every single lexicon, every different thing, I'm just going to tell you that. And then uh, if you have questions, you can ask me or start compiling some of this library for yourself and uh, digging in and finding these things. Uh, trust me when I tell you that if I, if I say that a certain word means a certain thing in context, um, that I've done a lot of research to bring that forward. Uh, it isn't just how I feel about the verse. Okay, so, beloved, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. few things to look at here. One, we are to test teaching. How do you test teaching? How do I know if somebody's teaching me accurately or inaccurately? Well, you need to examine it against the word of God. Okay. So, so you know, if somebody just makes a statement, um, you know, I'm not asking you to be always skeptical, uh, but um, test. If something doesn't sound right, dig a little bit and see if those things are so. And that is specifically what uh, John is saying here. You need to not just accept why? Because he says very plainly, many false prophets have gone out into the world. He doesn't say a few false prophets. He doesn't say just generally false prophets. He specifically says many, many false prophets. And it's just like it sounds, meaning there are going to be a lot of Bible teachers that you listen to. And then when you dig a little deeper, you find they're completely wrong, okay? Uh, you know what I'm talking about if you've watched any of the televangelists, right? 
You know, you, you, you just kind of like your you know, baloney meter goes off immediately. Something's wrong with this. And you got to look deeper. Okay, the scripture tells us that just because somebody says, I am a prophet, or a little more vaguely, they might say, uh, thus saith the Lord. And you're, you're supposed to just sort of faint back. That's, oh, hey, they claimed position and authority and title and invoked power upon uh, whatever they're saying. Examine it. Whenever somebody says, thus saith the Lord, that to me is like, I, okay, you asked for it. I've got to go look and find out. If you're going to say, thus saith the Lord, that you're, you're claiming the potency of God himself upon what's coming out of your mouth. So you put it under examine. Often these false prophets will insist you should not you should not question them. They make the claim, thus saith the Lord, and they proclaim the thing outward. Kenneth Copeland last year was saying that the Lord had invoked the power upon him, and he, by speaking it, had annihilated COVID. You know, it's done. <laughs> put a specific date on it and said, and he put a bunch of really embarrassing theatrics behind it where he blew on the microphone to blow it out of the United States. And he's a weirdo, okay? Yeah, I'll just say straight up, Kenneth Copeland's a false teacher if you don't already know that. Yeah, Kenneth Copeland, Ken Hagen, Joyce Meyer, Benny Hinn. There's a list of false teachers out there. How do I know they're false teachers? Because they've said things that don't come true. They've said things completely false about the word of God. So, you know, to dwell on this a little bit, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29, right? If you're not writing that down in your Bible, reach over and write it down in your neighbor's Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29, Paul specifically says in regard to prophets that if they speak in the church, one, perhaps two, should speak, but that the other prophets sitting by should, should judge whether those things be true or not. Hey, that literally means that within the church, it's appropriate for somebody to say, mm, that's not of the Lord, and to correct the teaching, that the prophets should, should weigh out what's being said. You don't just automatically accept. And then note, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29, if you didn't write it down, there's your second reference, uh, that he specifically says this should be done by one or two prophets only, and that within that, they should their, their statement should be judged. Okay? Oh, judge not. Right? They always scream that. Judge not, lest you be judged. Yeah, that's what Jesus said. And he was talking about weighing out punishment, right? Any of us that have ever been criminals and been to court, when the judge passed the judgment, it was punishment, right? It wasn't just to say, that's right, you've committed a crime. That's not, that's not the judgment. The judgment is the sentence. Jesus was saying, you don't get to punish people, right? So judge not was... You know, I don't like a certain brand of sinner, therefore I, I punch every one of them in the face. Uh, that, that isn't Christian. Jesus is saying you don't get to do that. Judge not lest you be judged. You jump right down to verse 15 of Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus said judge not. And he says you will know the false teachers by their fruit. Ah, discernment is needed in the body of Christ. The ability to look and weigh out and hear and understand whether what you're hearing is the truth or not. John is forewarning the church that there are going to be false teachers. There are going to be false prophets. You need to be on your guard. You need to be very watchful for these things. So again, the more you know the word of God, the easier it is to do those things. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Now, <clears throat> there's more to knowing the Spirit of God, and we'll talk about this in just a second. But, but in his culture, at this time specifically, the Gnostics are growing in their influence and they're poisoning the church. And so John is giving a very specific combative position here in, in explaining 
this in your culture at this time in this age this is how you're going to know the false teachers this is how you're going to know uh, the uh, false prophets uh, by this you know the spirit of god every spirit that confesses that jesus christ now just pause right i'm going to read that again in a moment but you're going to you're going to hear john say this uh, every spirit that confesses jesus christ Christ is a specific term, especially at this point in history, that only belongs to one individual, right? Satan has grabbed that title of Messiah and Christ and made it sound like, oh, well, all religions have their own Messiah. All the religions of the world have a savior, right? You cheapen the genuine by creating counterfeits okay and this is what satan has done is he's taken that term christ that term christ up to this point in history everyone was only only looking for one they were not looking for a buddhist christ and an islamic christ and a christian christ the way the world implies that today they hadn't even thought to do that the whole world was waiting for one Christ, and, it, and the Christ only belonged to the Jewish religion. They were the only ones, uh, the term meaning anointed one. Okay, So when John couples these together and says, Jesus Christ, he's giving the specific reference to the fact this isn't first and then middle, right? Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. It's not first, middle, last name. This is, this is Jesus as the Christ. Right. The culture has already begun at this point to drift from that thinking. The Gnostics have begun to pollute that thinking, and John is here correcting that thinking. Jesus alone is the Christ, is what he's saying. So reading it in context again, verse 2, by this you know the, the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Now, now again, the English misses it slightly. Has come in the Greek language originally would be better translated was sent. And you think like, well, so what? No, was sent implies he existed beforehand. Okay, he was with the Father. He was in eternity. He was in heaven. He was God and he was sent. Okay, has come slightly bears that idea, right? In that you were someplace else and now you've come here. But being that it came through birth, for us as New Testament Christians, we lose a little bit of that scent uh, attitude that's there. You want to hear it very clearly? Go back to the Gospel of John and just read how many times John refers to Jesus as having been sent. And how many times Jesus says and John records, I was sent. It, it totally infers pre-existence. None of us were sent. right? We didn't exist in the ethereal out there somewhere and became a human being sent here to exist. Jesus alone as God became the man and dwelt amongst us. We're going to actually deal with that a little later in this chapter, specifically where references reach back and, and talk about uh, John chapter 14, verse 9, where Philip asks, uh, show us the Father. And, and Jesus answers, uh, have I been with you so long that you do not recognize me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Okay, uh, John chapter 1, verse 1, Charles Taze Russell founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, hated the verse so badly that he rewrote it in their version of the Bible known as the New World Translation. It reads, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Jesus is the Word, and the Word is God. Uh, Russell decides that doesn't work for me. So his version reads, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, small g, right? Add an A, move a comma, lowercase, you know, one of the many gods is what Russell implies. <clears throat> so point being here, Jesus is the Christ. He preexisted 
as God, he became a man and he dwelt amongst us. Uh, the term religion is, um, there's a big, long linguistic path behind it. But the, the summary of the thing is it means relinking. That's the definition. There was a link and it was broken. So humanity, human race, is trying to relink with God, right? And that is the issue. God creates all that exists, including earth, Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. Immediately, sin enters into the program. Chapter 3, the whole thing just falls apart. And from chapter 3 of Genesis until right here, God has been relinking, okay? Humanity is incapable of doing it. Religion doesn't accomplish the relink. It is only through relationship. Jesus Christ is the one. Atonement, right? Jesus Christ shed blood, again, talked about at the end of this chapter. Uh, atonement, at one minute. That's God putting humanity back in connection with God so that they are one. The fellowship lost in the garden, right? Adam, where are you? Right? Is God putting the program back together? The relationship is restored through the atonement, the atonement that Jesus Christ performed on the cross through his shed blood. That's what John is specifically saying here. He, he is correcting all of the garbage that has polluted the faith of Christianity up to this point. And from here, we can extrapolate it into our own world and see how it still corrects all those problems, how it still fixes what humanity has destroyed and is presently destroying so in this every spirit that confesses jesus christ has come in the flesh is of god and every spirit that does not confess jesus christ does not insist upon the pre-existence of jesus as god as the singular messiah oh jesus is a good teacher we hear that a lot right we hear people saying all kinds of things about jesus do they confess him as god do they confess him as the one and only Messiah? If he does, then that is, you know, spiritual. That is of God. He who knows, excuse me, I'm, I'm jumping down. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist. I'll clarify again, right? <clears throat> Our culture has turned Antichrist into like a really dark, demonic, evil thing. And, you know, you'll be, according to the world's picture and the, the books they've written, you'll easily be able to identify the Antichrist according to them. He's ugly, you know, sinister, sickly, devilish, uh, you know, just there's a black cloud all around him. You know, he's probably he's probably just, you know, like the devil, red, you know, horns, pitchfork. When the Antichrist shows up, nobody's going to wonder. That's that's not what the scripture says. And the term Antichrist doesn't even mean opposed to or, or against or enemy of. It means in, in replacement of, to replace Christ. And, and that is what a lot of the religions of the world have done, is try to get Jesus out and be Jesus. You know, serve as Jesus, to, to imitate Jesus. You know, as I said, you know, many religions of the world today, you know, insist that they have a Christ also. Yeah, yeah, Jesus was a Christ, but Buddha was a Christ, and Muhammad was a Christ, and, and you know, we're waiting for Lord Maitreya, and he'll be a Christ. And, you know, you hear all kinds of weird things. Now, Jesus alone is the Christ, and anyone that doesn't confess that, you know, you know, if they want to say, oh, I agree with you, you know, Jesus was a good teacher. Is he God? is the only source of salvation. No, then you don't actually believe in Jesus. You've made up your own Jesus. you got your own God. You, you, you've created idolatry, something that replaces Jesus. Uh, I'll tell you right now, you guys, and I, I know I harp on this a lot, but <clears throat> doctors, I'm not against doctors at all, right? It just They've been patching me back together for over a month now. Uh, doctors are good. I totally endorse medicine, that whole idea. But humanity has replaced Jesus with doctors and their prescription pad. Okay, a lot of the time. You know, dealing with depression, go see the doctor, get the antidepressant. Anxiety, go see the doctor, get the anti-anxiety. 
psychosis of any kind only dealt with by medicine. And, and you kind of get pat on the head when you go in and you say, well, you know, I'm trusting the Lord. I'm praying. I'm looking for been in fellowship, brothers and sisters helping me. And they're like, yeah, that's quaint is, you know, basically what they say. You know, what you really need is is our solution. And they replaced Jesus. Right. You go you go back 50, 100 years ago. Uh, there's a book. um, your drug may be your problem. Okay, that that's the name of the book. It's written by two clinical psychologists. Each of them, oh, if they're still in practice at the time when it was written in the early two thousands, uh, they both each one had more than fifty years in the psychiatric industry. Okay, and they, I mean, I know I'm way off trail, but bear with me in this antichrist sort of frame of mind. They both said that when they started in the psychiatric industry, uh, what they concentrated on, what they were trained to do is, is befriend their patient. Think about how odd that is in comparison to what's going on in the psychiatric and the medical community today. To befriend their patient to where their patient would, would automatically know, love, and trust them. Okay? that they held their secrets in confidence, that they worked with them, that they truly cared about them. And what they tried to discover is, what are the most influential relationships you have in your life? So if they got somebody that comes in and they're treating them, they just try to find what are the most influential relationships in that person's life, good, bad, or ugly. They're not looking for the positive ones. They're just saying, who are you the most connected to that influences you? And then from there... They would look at which ones are negative and positive and how much should they, they help the patient understand how much should you actually be connected to these people? Because some of them you have to be, even though they might be very powerfully negative influences, you have to be, but can you learn to guard yourself against their influences, right? So, so they just work years and years working, and without question, they both said that they, they, the two, the three relationships that they needed to know about was number one, mother and father, but thirdly, who's the clergy in your life? This is what they were trained to do. Who's the clergy? Because if we can at all, we need to involve them in your treatment. We need to bring them in. They need to be learning the same things about you that we're learning and working with us to do these same things. They were 100% of the time trying to involve clergy with these people's lives. If they didn't have a priest or a pastor, they would try to encourage them to find one that they knew and they trusted. Remarkable. Today, you come in, and I'm not exaggerating at all. You got 15 minutes. That's literally where the bar is set. Not 15 years, years. That's what these men were doing originally. 15 minutes. 15 minutes and the prescription pad. That's what they're doing. Just writing it, replacing Christ. The clergy was the most important thing. The clergy was the most important thing, above parents even. Because the clergy would help this individual develop proper relationships with the parents, be they good or bad, repairing things, all this stuff. Clergy, these two psychologists were saying that was our method. That's what we were trained in when, we, when they went to college, when they went to school. That's what they were taught. And they came out working that way. So before they even begin the book about the way these drugs affect, infect, destroy people, they just say, look, this is what psychology used to be for everybody that was involved. And look how quickly it's come off the rails. It, it is a messed up thing right now. Antichrist, that which Christ could provide you with. You depressed? Jesus Christ, listen to me, Jesus Christ can fix that. Filled with anxiety? Jesus Christ can fix that. How long is it going to take? When is it going to happen? I don't know. Right? As clergy? I'd love to help you with it. Love to see the Lord working in your life and in my life the way it should. We don't want to replace Christ. 
with anything. We want Christ to have his central position. So here's John saying this spirit of Antichrist, these people understood that. See how lost that is in our culture? See how lost that is in the church? That's not the thought. You hear Antichrist and you think some cartoon character. You know, got a big black cape, covers up his face, laughs and hackles. And scary. Not so. That which would replace Christ. What you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. It's already there. Look, if John said that thousands of years ago, look around. Look around at what's going on. I see Antichrist standing in the pulpit a lot of the time, replacing Christ. Rather than teaching people to find Jesus and develop a relationship with Jesus, they are just making sure the spotlight is focused right here. Just look at me. Don't pay attention to anything else. I, I will be your everything. It needs to be that anyone that teaches uh, the body of Christ is teaching the body of Christ to find Christ, to find Jesus. Verse 4. You are of God. Boy, stop right there. That's a big question for a lot of people. A am I a child of God? Am I born again? Right? You know, I, I, uh, I'll never forget uh, my good friend, Mike Dinick, years ago. Um, his, uh, his grandmother, uh, with the Lord now, um, raised in Catholicism, just saturated by the Catholic Church constantly. As devout a woman as you've ever met in your life. Just dear old saint. Nothing fake, nothing false about her at all. Mike finds Jesus. He wants to share Jesus with his Catholic grandmother, right? And as she's fading in this world and coming to her last days, he's asking her straight up, do you, do you know that you're going to heaven? And she got choked up and with a tear in her eyes said, I hope so. We have the assurance, you guys. We have the assurance because it's not based on you. You're, you're always going to be a sinner. Always. I, I'm not writing you a pass here saying, so just go rob banks or something. You know what I'm saying? Just fire up the crystal meth lab. I'm not saying anything like that. Okay. What, what I'm saying is you're, all, you're human. You're flesh. You're going to have failures. Why are you saved? Because Jesus Christ died for your sins. The whole of it is contained there at that cross on Calvary 2,000 years ago. That's where your salvation stems from completely. So when John says, you are of God, he goes into a great explanation here, but the assurance is right there, and he means that. And he tells us later, you can know that you have salvation. So many people that are involved in all kinds of denominations of Christianity don't realize that the Scripture teaches us that. You can have the assurance of salvation, not based upon how good a person you are, based upon your trust in Jesus Christ. So let's move into this. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. So he's speaking largely broad stroke of a few things here. Antichrist, right? The world in general. And he would include with this the false teachers, Okay, so that whole thing that you might read the first few verses and get kind of freaked out. He comes to verse 4 and says, you are children of God and you've already overcome them. Now, let me just be clear, right? He paints the picture here of positionally because you're in Christ. It's not because of your great spiritual strength, right? You're so smart. You're so clever. You're such an excellent Bible teacher. You know, maybe you are. Maybe you're not. And if you're not, you shouldn't worry about it. Why? Because Christ has overcome. And we are in him. We are, we are in Christ. And, and as you know, you're implying, he is in us. So you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Right? We often quote that as though it's the whole verse. Right? But the whole thing is, you are children of God. And you have overcome already. Because greater is he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, 
Jesus Christ than he who is in the world, meaning literally Satan. So, you know, if you're looking at any lower position, uh, you know, and thinking, well, but they're incredibly evil. You can move all the way up to the highest rung on that dark spiritual ladder, hell, and find Satan, Lucifer, at the top rung, if you want to look at it that way. And the one who is in you is greater than even the greatest in that kingdom. So there's no concern. What do we often say? The worst thing they could ever do to you is the best thing they could ever do. Right? Even if they killed you, you step from here into the presence of the Lord. Right? You, you win every time. You, it's impossible for you to lose in this scenario. You, you get the grand prize. So uh, within this, uh, they are of the world, specifically here, the false teachers, the false prophets, the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, they are of the world. Uh, therefore, they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. Uh, that, to me, speaks a lot about um, what's going on in the church today and the way the church is moving into this worldly realm, uh, spiritism in the church, you know, that people want to talk of as somehow being a spiritual thing. Like, you know, you're communing with spirits. You can speak with the dead. Like, what is that? Uh, Bethel music and the teachers from Bethel, you know, the pastors talking about how they can communicate with the dead and they have communicated with the dead. They were doing a thing briefly where uh, they were teaching Bethel music. We, you know, people love their music and all that, and their pastors. They, they were teaching that um, the gifts we receive, when we die, they are passed on to others. And that's why it's important to have fellow Christians around you when you pass away, so that they can receive your gifts. And if, you, and if they're not, and you just die, then your, your gifts stay right in the location where you die. I mean, where, where do we get that out of the scripture? They were doing things, you guys, where they were having ceremonies at people's grave sites where they would lay down and try to absorb the gifts that had been left there. That is some serious freaky stuff. It is absolutely non-biblical whatsoever. Um, you know, the, the head of their organization was trying to convince people that he speaks directly with Jesus Christ and he has literally eaten the flesh and drank the physical blood of Jesus Christ. That, that, that is, right, of the world, like, like the satanic, like the false teachings, like all the garbage that comes. They have since, I'll just tell you this, they have since stopped saying those things so publicly. Because Christian organizations stepped in and confronted them and said, this is not Christian. Well, what you're teaching is spiritism. It has nothing to do with Christianity. So, you know, they are of the world and the things they teach are of this world. They're not of Christianity. Strange things like this were taught by the Gnostics. They were, they were teaching that Christians were performing cannibalism. Because we say that ceremonially, right, we eat the flesh and we drink the blood of Jesus Christ. We eat the bread and we drink the cup that symbolize, right, his flesh and his blood. And they hear that, don't understand, and now they're telling people they're cannibals, right? So when you're reading in the book of Acts and Paul is teaching until past midnight and Eutychus falls out the window, remember that whole deal? It specifically says that they were meeting together with the windows open and many candles lit so people could see in and recognize that they're not performing cannibalism. Right? The, 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 the candles were you know, illuminating the whole room so everyone could see plainly. They weren't drawing the curtains, doing things in the shadows. Point being here, th this is a worldly behavior, this sort of seance atmosphere. It's of the flesh. It's of something that is sinful and dark. And John is saying, that's not us. We're not part of that. That's antichrist. That's not our teaching. So uh, this greatness, they're of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. Right? You know, somebody who's not saved you know, saying, like, I'm deeply spiritual, and I've mocked that enough times, right? You've heard me say that. You know, they'll say, I'm deeply spiritual. But then you start talking about sin 
and repentance and Jesus Christ shed blood and they're repulsed by that. Why? Because they're not actually spiritual. They're of the world. Right? We speak of things that are heavenly and they're repulsed by it. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. Now, you got to understand this. <clears throat> because that has been manipulated by false teachers where they say something that's wrong and you say, hey, that's wrong. And they say, see, you're not of the spirit because if you were, you would believe what I'm saying. Okay. Clarify this. John is saying we, the apostles, were eyewitnesses to these things. We were taught one-on-one -on -one by Jesus Christ. So when we teach you, if you are of the Spirit of God, you will automatically agree with us. You will know and understand that the things we are saying, you'll read it in the Word of God, you'll hear it in the sermon, the Holy Spirit will speak to you, and you'll know, believe, and understand. The world rejects it, wants nothing to do with it, says that you're somehow crazy and that what you're saying is wrong. This isn't something that is presumptuous. Like whatever I think and whatever I imagine, I speak it, and therefore it is of God and those who hear it. Joyce Meyer specifically in this regard to what's being said right here, teaches an old Gnostic teaching, which was that which is spiritual is good. That which is earthly is bad or evil. So when it comes to Jesus, they have to say Jesus was not earthly, wasn't in the flesh. Okay, He was a spirit. He was an apparition. He was a phantom. Okay, uh, they made up stories about how when he walked on the beach, he didn't leave footprints. That, that the whole time he was on earth, he never ate food. Why? Because he was a phantom. Okay, they went as far with this because people began to say, no, we saw him eat food. We saw his footprints. We walked with him. We knew him. They said, okay, well, what happened was when he met John the Baptist, and this is where Joyce Meyer grabs a hold of the same idea. When, when he was baptized by John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And so that was the spiritual come upon the man, just simply a man, Jesus, who then performed all these miracles. And, and then remember when he was at the cross and he was dying and he said, Father, in your hands, I commend my spirit. The Holy Spirit left him and he became just a man again. And so then he died and he went to hell the literal place of fire and torment, where he was tormented by demons for three days, and then God sent his Holy Spirit down to hell, and Jesus was born again, the first born again one in hell, who was then resurrected by the Holy Spirit, came back to life. Those are all false teachings. Okay, it's absolutely insane when you compare it to what the Word of God says. And this is what John is trying to say. Look, look at how these things don't match up. And when we teach you that which is of God, that's why you under, know and understand that what we're saying is the truth. The, 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 spirit, the spirit that testified to us, we're testifying to you. The spirit that's in you gives you confirmation and you can believe. Joyce Meyer says, well, I imagine that to be true. Therefore, it is true. So I preach it now. And if you don't agree with me, then you're not of the spirit of God. False teachers, highly manipulative you want to be very, very careful about listening to any of that. They, Rodney Howard Brown, Lakeland, Florida, the Word of Faith movement and the Word of Faith, or the School of Rhema is actually the name of their college. And I said, we asked that the Lord would speak to us with Rhema. I'll follow all of these rabbit trails. <clears throat> we have many words for the word word. Confusing enough for you? <clears throat> the word logos is the general word to anyone. Okay, The Bible is the Logos. It speaks to everyone. If you will read the Word of God, it speaks to you. Okay, It's where we get the term Logo, right? If you're trying to sell Coca-Cola, if you put the big logo above your restaurant, people know they serve Coke. It's the general word to everyone. right? But if you walk in and sit down at the restaurant and say, I'd really like to have a Pepsi, and you say to the waitress, can I get a Pepsi here? And she says to you directly, I'm sorry, we only serve Coca-Cola products. That's Raymond. She's speaking to you directly. 
giving you very specific information. Yes, the logo, the logos outside implies Coca-Cola, but at your detailed question, the direct answer that comes to you directly is Coke only. Okay? Or maybe you even get the secret. I should have gone the other direction. Can I get a Pepsi? She says, yes, actually, we do serve Pepsi also. So outside, the logos to everyone implies Coke. Come in here. But when you ask specifically, she gives you information that you didn't have. And it's a message directly to you. You can also get a Pepsi here. Okay? You understand the specific communication? So those of, of, of Rodney Howard Brown, Pastor Rodney Howard Brown's church, Lakeland, Florida, and specifically the school of Rama, their Bible theology seminary college, uh, they say Rama is the thing that's most important, the private communication. So it doesn't matter what the Bible says. If God says something to you specifically that may, and, and listen to me, they teach, it may even contradict the logos. Contradict the logos. That's okay, because rhema is more significant than logos, they say. Wait a minute. The things that are written in the scripture cannot be denied. They will never be wrong. Is this book inerrant or not? Right, Because they're teaching things like I just described to you about Jesus Christ was a man. The Holy Spirit came upon him. He went to the cross. The Holy Spirit was taken from him. The man Jesus went to hell and the Holy Spirit came back. And when questioned on that, she says that's the personal revelation from God. And until you have the personal revelation from God, you will never understand these things. Here again, where I'm deriving all of this from. Verse 5, they are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. Because they were taught by Jesus Christ. So the things that they're going to say, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the, you know, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's never going to change. The Word is never going to change. It's not going to say something else. So your private interpretation is not possible. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know that the spirit of truth, and by this we know the spirit of truth versus, we would say, the spirit of error. That's how you know. <clears throat> I threw that term out of the baloney meter. When you've studied the genuine thoroughly enough, you're going to sit in certain places and hear things from the preacher, from the pastor, from someone claiming to be a Christian, you're going to think, that doesn't sound right. I don't know exactly how, but that doesn't add up. And over time, where you're going to learn the truth, yes, by the Holy Spirit, but specifically from the Logos. The Word of God is going to show you where that thing is wrong. Okay? I've said to you many times before, forgive me for my repetition, the number one way that counterfeits are found is by bank tellers, but it is not because they are trained to be very attuned to counterfeits. They are taught, they are told, you're going to handle money, real money, so much that when fake money goes through your hands, it's going to feel different to you. Don't look for it. You don't even have to look for it. Just do your job. You're going to handle money, real money, all day. If it does not feel right to you, then put it under closer examination. Use the marker. Put it under the light. Hold it up to the light. Find the flaw. It's going to be the feel. Not because you know the counterfeits, because you know the genuine. The thing you need to study is the Word of God. That's how you're going to find the falsehood. So this is what John is saying. We've taught you accurately in this whole uh, process. Uh, specifically, uh, Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes and the church is exploding, it says, Acts 2.42, that they continued steadfastly, unbroken. In particular, the thing I'm fo focusing on is the apostles' doctrine. The, the church was continuously and constantly being taught by the apostles, the word of God. That's how the church grew. That's how the church became strong. That's how it defended itself, by knowing the word of God. Think about how much the church has just 
withdrawn from the Word, not teaching the Word, not associated with the Word, you know, telling people they shouldn't be involved in the Word. You know, I've, I've beat up the, the, some of you guys are going to get real mad at me right now. I've, I've beat up the whole, the application, the chosen. You know, a lot of you guys really like watching the chosen. Okay. <clears throat> so here's the deal. Uh, chosen is written by Catholics, produced by Catholics, in almost exclusively Catholic settings. The only time it hasn't been produced in Catholic settings is when it was being filmed amongst Mormons in Mormon settings. It's a Mormon and Catholic production. Okay, It's neat, but ha have you not watched it and thought, wow, they're really taking some liberties here to develop these personalities and these people. They're really going a long ways. Okay, I'll say this. Entertaining, and that's where you need to keep it, is in the entertainment box. right? Not in the doctrine box. Not in the truth box. Right? Not even in the faith box. Okay? Entertainment box. Right next to SpongeBob and Ghostbusters. I don't know. Whatever else you want to categorize that with. Word of God. That's the truth. That's the thing to cling to in this, specifically how we know. Beloved, let us love one another. Now, I went down through and just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, not ten. Love, loved, loves, love, love, right? I mean, he just they rips through love here. Okay, well, here's the deal. This love is the love of self-sacrifice. We in our culture, right, somebody says, oh, man, you're beautiful. I love you. What they really mean is I'm overwhelmed by lust right now. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean love at all. The Greeks understood that, and it was hard to lie. You know, guys in the bar didn't say, I love you. They said, I'm filled with gyros. <laughs> you know, we get the word exotic and erotic from that. Okay, and, they, and the, the ladies understood what was being said. They didn't have any delusion about this man is committed to me, and he's going to die for me, and he's going to serve me. That wasn't in the program at all. The gals that were looking for that were, you know, usually in church, <laughs> looking for a real relationship. This love right here is the one that doesn't have any of the erotic involved in it at all. It doesn't have any of those other things. And it is purely self-sacrificing. It's actually a layer. It's, it's agape, but it's, it's a layer of agape that a parent has for its child. Just, yeah, there's friendship involved with that. This isn't even that. This, this is, I will die. I will die. That's, it's strictly that layer of unconditional love. And, and the definition actually comes within this, these few verses right here. So the love that's being talked about over and over again is self-sacrificing love. Even when he talks about how as saints we're going to love one another, that's the love that's being described. The, the love you would have to serve a fellow Christian to the point where you're going to lose. Nothing's coming back to you. Everything's going to be poured out of you for someone else. That's the love that's being described here. Yeah, yeah, eternal reward. Sure, but in the moment, in the function of the love we're talking about, it's all outward. Right? There's nothing. So, beloved, let us love one another. For love. See, this is the self-sacrificing love. And this is why I'm talking about the tense is so important in these settings. You know, this love is very different than what we think of as love in our culture. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. Love is of God. So, you know, when the hippies are singing, all we need is love. That, none of that was self-sacrificing, was it? That love was all selfish. All we need is love. Um, yeah, all we need is this love. That would have nailed it. And that wasn't what was going on at all. You know, what did the summer of love produce? Sexually transmitted diseases, mostly. 
unwanted pregnancies, you know, a lot of time. Some friendships, but usually those didn't work out well either. The back, biting back, stabbing, lying, gossip, hypocrite thing that was going on. This love is what's needed. And it's what they were longing for, you know. What was it, Terry Livgren singing, you know, I want to know what love is? That was, that was weeks before he surrendered his life to Christ. Because he was literally saying, I've been through all these worldly things. And I've, I want, I want, I, he was literally actually saying, I want to actually know what love is. I've got no I Surrendered to Jesus Christ now, living for the Lord. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. This love, self-sacrificing love. Everyone who loves self-sacrificing love is born of God and knows God. <laughs> you want to know if somebody's truly a child of God? Self-sacrificing love will be the eminent part of who they are. That's going to be their person. He who does not love in this regard does not know God. For God is love. Self-sacrificing love. That's, who, that's what God is. Right? You don't have to do anything for him. You understand that? To be saved, to be loved of God, you do not have to do anything for him. That's incredible. That's incredible. He loves you. Right? Joe Foch, you've heard me say it many times. Hey, he's the one who said, you know, I know God loves me in the sense what's incredible is he likes me. <laughs> it's crazy that God loves us in this way. There's the, the you know what whatever we give back is filled with our human rot. Right? It's always conditional. It always has a slant. It always you know, I love you right now, God, because you're doing good stuff for me. But if life crushes me, I'll shake my fist at the sky and say horrible things. <laughs> Not so. God is love. That self-sacrificing love. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this love, God was manifested to us. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. That God has sent, and there it is, sent his only begotten son into the world, that, he might, that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That, that's the love. That's why I'm saying this over and over again, that, that God already loves you. You're already saved. It's not conditional. He sent his son. You want to know what God's love is? Right? Well, while we were complete jerks living for ourselves, he loved us this way. He sent his son to die on our behalf. Look, man, I just, most of us know, right? If you've had kids, there's a love in your heart that's just crazy, right? About these people. You know, they drive you crazy, they drive you mad, but when the chips are down, you will throw yourself right into the jaws of death for these kids, right? God loved you so much that he threw his son into the jaws of death. That is wild. That is absolutely insane, crazy, wild that he did that. Would you do that with your child? Is there anyone that you love so much that you would sacrifice your child in order to save someone else? That's how much God loves you. While you were a sinner. Not after you'd surrendered your life to him and lived so good and polished up your act so well that he finally went, yeah, I just got to have this one. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That, that's the love of Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see why I'm dwelling on the fact that nothing's coming back? He's, he's making this payment on your behalf because he loves you that much. That is wild. That's incredible that he cares for us. I know for certain I don't love anyone that much. I don't. 
I can imitate that because I have been loved that much. And that's the love that I have. Because of what Christ did for me, I can do for others. Because of what Christ did for you, you can do for others. You can have this love. The only way you have it is because Christ gave it to you. (laughs) You're not so good that it comes from you yourself. It's his Holy Spirit working through you, working in you. This is what happens. As we embrace the love, as we accept the love, it, it, it emanates through us. Jesus talking about the living water that will pour out of us. You know, I, I've had many people come and you know, say kind things about me being a pastor and whatever. And I'm always careful to say, look, if there be any good, it has to be Christ. Because before Christ was in my life, you would not have wanted to know me. You'd have been concerned. (laughs) Maybe about your safety. Definitely about your wallet. You know. (laughs) I was untrustworthy. I was a terror. I was not anything good. That which is good in us as believers is of God. It's his working through us. So in this, the love of God was manifest toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Most significantly, the body of Christ. We will love fellow believers this way. You're going to love the world this way too. You've done it. You've handed out your resources and thought, I'm probably going to regret this. And sometimes you didn't. But a lot of the times you did. And you went, well, Christ did that for me, so you weren't that concerned about it. You didn't have to sit around and debate. You showed them the love of Christ, the unconditional, self-sacrificing love of Christ. If they do wrong with it, that's between them and the Lord. Your resources extended to them. No one has seen God, verse 12, at any time. If we love uh, one another, God abides in us. And his love has been perfected in us. If you're thinking, like, I am not perfected. It's complete doesn't mean perfected in the way, you know, flawless. It doesn't mean that. It's not the English sense of perfection. It's the idea of fulfilled. Positionally, this is what I'm saying over and over again. You are already saved in Christ. I take it a step further. Right? We're almost done here. Just bear with me while I wrap up this last couple thoughts. Uh, You're already positionally cleansed in Christ. Right? We often talk about how, well, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm a work in progress. Positionally, not so. You're already cleansed by Christ, positionally. You're already sanctified. What's really weird is that the scripture even tells us that we're already glorified. Good grief. I know I'm not there. You know what I'm saying? I mean, just, no, if I think I am, you guys will inform me how I'm not. You know what I'm saying? It's not positionally, right? Because Christ has already saved us. We are saved, we are sanctified, we are glorified in Jesus Christ. So this is a positional thing. Uh, His love has been perfected in us, the way it worked in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, right? And let's pause there again one more time. Okay? Fish gives birth to fish. Okay? Dog gives birth to dog. Cat gives birth to cat. Human gives birth to human. God gives birth to God. Right? Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. He's not lesser. He's not a little lower. It's not a lowercase g, right? He is God in the flesh. God became the man, Jesus Christ. You know, confess this, that Jesus is the Son of God. God abides in him and he in God. 
and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. That love I just described, that we just poured over. We know, we confess, we believe that love. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And it's that self-sacrificing love. It's, it's not the love of the world, the ooey, gooey, mushy. It's not even right friendship. You, you hear people saying, I love you, man. You hear that a lot now in our culture. You know, in the 70s and 80s, I never heard men saying to men, I love you. You know, we, we say it a lot today, right? And, and I'll tell you, if you think about it, what's most often being said, said is, I'm deeply moved emotionally by our friendship. So it's the love of friendship. It's phileo. Philadelphia, brotherly love is what we're talking about. Okay, It is not self-sacrifice. I love you unless you burn me. In which case... I will unfriend you, right, on Facebook or wherever, you know. Isn't this the way of the world? Okay, so it's not self-sacrificing love. That's not the love we're talking about here. And the world's actually confused about that. They hear Christians talk in love. They go, us too. I love all my friends. No, no, you, you are deeply friendly toward your friends. That's phileo. Brotherly love. That is not this love, which is a deep layer of agape love that is self-sacrificing, that would take your child and allow it to die on behalf of someone else. That's not the buddy friendship that you shout across the parking lot. That's a, that's a worldly thing. And I'm, cool. I'm glad I'm, that that's going on and our culture does that somewhat. But, but to think that it somehow equates the same love of Christianity, it does not. It does not. Think about this for just a moment. I, I really am wrapping this up. Do you not love your brothers in Christ with this love? I think you do. I've hung out with all of you. I think you would give up of yourself very deeply to care for and love others. Right? Some of us are a little more jaded and we're a little more cautious, but there is a deep-seated love in the heart that comes from the fact that God loved us this way. And especially within the body of Christ, we will care with a depth for the body of Christ. That's an evidence of our conversion. Look around the world. They will not do that. They will not do it like you do it. Uh, the counterfeits cheap and the genuine, right? I've already said that tonight. Our love is much deeper than anything the world has. Much deeper than anything the world has. And we don't want to get tricked. Oh, they're deep friends of mine over there. And I need to know, do they know Christ? If they don't, then I guarantee you, the deep friendship love you have over there is not the same of what you have in this room. Okay. There are people in this room you do not know that if you were deeply in need, they would come to your aid. The world is not so. Because the love of Christ is what compels us, brings us to these things. So bigger subjects 17 uh, through 19, 20, and 21, we'll couple them together with chapter 5, uh, hopefully, if we're together next week. The thing I really want you to walk away with, I know you got it, but please just let me be painfully repetitious. Christ loves you right now. You do not have to go to bed tonight saying, gosh, I hope the rapture does not happen tonight. Right? You don't have to go to bed that way. You can go to bed, lay your head deeply in rest, knowing Christ loves you right now. If you didn't know that when you walked through these doors, you can walk out these doors in a full assurance of that. You ask him to love you that way, make you his child. He'll carry you right out the doors in a peacefulness you can't even imagine. You do not have to live in any fear and intrepidation of God. He addresses that. You can read the rest of the chapter and chapter 5 to close the book out, and you'll see exactly what I'm saying about the assurance that Christ provides us with. Rest in his peace. Right? If he was willing to sacrifice his son, truly he must love you. Truly, he must love you more than you could possibly imagine. 
Uh, as much as we may have already imagined it, you got to let your mind wrap fully around that concept that he was willing to take his son and sacrifice him so that you could live. That's a gracious God right there. That's a loving God. Rest in that peace. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, we'll pick up at 17 next week. Stand and we'll pray. Yes. <laughs> Amen, Debbie. <laughs> Easier said than done, she says. <laughs> Standing and praying. <clears throat> Father, you are good to us. And we thank you for it. We thank you for your assurance, Lord. And we need it. Our hearts deceive us. The world deceives us. Circumstances deceive us. Help us to rest in you. Help us to trust you. Lord, we know, based on what we've seen written, that you do love us. We definitely don't deserve it. Help us to rest in that peace. I know I've said that repeatedly, Lord, but draw our hearts into you. Help us to allow you to give us that assurance and that rest. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.